Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 26. Prince Caspian, Continued. (laughs) Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We went through the first part of Prince Caspian last week, and this week we get the joy of the second part, where we're going to be able to not only finish the the summary of it, going through the chapters, but David and I will get a good chance to talk about today the big major themes. So when we left off, the two strands of our story had just come together. We'd been listening to Trumpkin's story, and we'd heard about how Prince Caspian had been on the run for his life, how he had found old Narnia how they began to gather together to prepare to fight King Meras, how they had blown Queen Susan's horn. And it's now at this point that the children realize that it was the horn that pulled them into Narnia. And actually, if you look at the original titles that Lewis had for this book, it was all based around that, drawn back into Narnia or Horn of Narnia, something along those lines. So while Trumpkin seems to understand that, yes, the horn did bring these children in, they're just children. And so he doesn't think they're going to be much help. And we've got a little bit of comic relief as Trumpkin is humiliated in swordplay by Edmund and his use of a bow by Susan. And after he gets hurt, Lucy heals him with some of her cordial. So he gets a little crash course in seeing how these children, how the Pevensies, might actually be rather useful to their cause. And now I can answer to you what I thought of Trumpkin. I remember now thinking this, uh, that I really liked him because... He, he had this kind of cockiness to him, assuredness, and he was completely humiliated and proved wrong. And you know what? He took it honorably. <laughs> I respect that. I mean, it's okay if you got a little cockiness in you, but the second you're wrong, you better be able to eat a bit of that humble pie. And he did, and he was very gracious about it. So I liked Trumpkin. Mm-hmm. And then they all start making their way to Aslan's How, but unfortunately get horribly lost. And when I was reading this, all I could think of was all of those quotations in Mere Christianity about when you get lost, you need to get back onto the right road. Sometimes it doesn't mean going forward. It means going back to where you made the mistake and go in the other direction this time. Did they do that? No, they kept going forward and like pivoting. They, right? they, 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 they kept going in the wrong direction for a while yeah. because Lucy had seen Aslan at the gorge and thought that he wanted them to go that direction. But nobody believes her except Edmund. And I couldn't help but think, have they learned nothing? This was a very frustrating part to me. We did this in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund is finally doing the right thing, and it's now the other two who are being completely useless, forgetting what Professor Kirk said. It was the trilemma, the lunatic liar or lord. Is Lucy known to be somebody to to lie? No. She's clearly not mad. Uh, so therefore she's probably telling the truth and she's got it right before. So it would have made the most sensible thing to go with her suggestion, but instead they go the doubting Thomas route. If it wasn't for the sake that there's a really good theological principle here, the way it was set up, I would have said it's actually unbelievable. Really? Yes, because I would I would say Lucy has such a good. Track oh no no no! Record. Sorry sorry sorry! I mean uh, the way Lewis wrote it, like it's just it would never happen that way. I agree completely with you. Anyone in their right mind, given the her credibility, given her past, given exactly what the professor said, I think not believing her is unbelievable. 
Uh, see, there I disagree. Uh, and I point to the Bible when you see people's faith failing again and again and again. They're very quick to forget. You've got the feeding of the 5,000, and then on a separate occasion there's 4,000 people, and the apostles are going, oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? I, and I like they to forgotten think... already? Come on, guys. And maybe it's my personality, because I like to think if I saw the feeding of the 5,000, I would have believed. <laughs> I, I feel like I believed that a lot less. Um, and so I guess maybe it's the, my, my worldview I'm applying to it. Uh, if I were in those situations, I'd be like, are you guys kidding me right now? But I believe there's a really cool theological principle here of how she does this, and she is put in a position where she has to choose either following Aslan, she's being called in a certain direction, or not. And so I, I, I believe it, it ended up leading to a really cool message that I, I think we'll probably be talking a little bit more about later. And just the very fact that she's called Lucy, that means light. Oh, I didn't know that. Lewis would have no doubt have known about two other Lucys. There is a Blessed Lucy of Narnia. And actually a relic of hers was brought to St. Aloysius in Oxford by Walter Hooper. And when I was in Oxford, I got to see it. No way. That's cool. And there's also Santa Lucia. Um, She's often presented as having a crown of candles or holding her eyes in her hands. And she is the patron saint of the blind. Wait, though. Okay. So, Lucy, light. What about Lucifer? That just means light bearer. So, Lucifer is a light bearer? Mm-hmm. Satan? Yeah. And you'll actually, you actually hear as a, as a description of Christ sometimes. If you've ever been to a very traditional form of mass, you have a thurifer, and he is the incense bearer. But why would we ever use... I, I mean, I believe you. I, that's what it means. But why would we ever use light bearer to describe Satan? I'd be like the opposite. Light destroyer. Because what was he? He was an angel. It's not out of bad fleas that you make devils, but bad archangels. But a fallen one. Yeah, interesting. I do like that Saint Santa Lucia and Blessed Lucia in Ireland. That's cool, though. But I think in particular the fact that she's patron saint of the blind. She's the only one who sees Aslan, and they need to trust her, and they don't. Yeah. And also, she, she buckles under the pressure. So... That night, after them running around in circles, Lucy's woken by Aslan. And there's a lovely line there. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, no, (laughs) I'm always the same. But effectively, your ability to perceive more of me increases over time. They kind of mess up this line in the movie, but that's, that's by the by. But I love that idea of as you grow in your faith, as you mature as a Christian, you have a greater ability, a greater faculty to be able to receive more of God and to see him bigger than you saw him before. And he reproves her for her lack of faith. And when we think back to mere Christianity again, remember Lewis's definition of faith. Faith isn't believing something against the evidence. Faith is holding on to what you've come to believe because of the evidence, even though your emotions are performing a blitz against you. Mm. Remember when we did the videos, I gave the example of going skydiving. Mentally, you can know that this is safe. You can know that the school is safe. But when you're at the doorway with the earth a long way down, suddenly your emotions get attacked and you need faith to carry on what you know rationally to be true. That's something that I've gotten a lot better at in life. I, I don't know if it... Oh, please. I don't, <laughs> oh, thank you, David. That's all I wanted. A little affirmation. <laughs> I don't know if, it's, if it carries over in life as you can do it in other parts. You can do it in your faith life. But 
for example, flying airplanes. When I grew up, I used to be afraid of turbulence, and I did a huge amount of research, and I realized planes don't go down from turbulence at all. And it's okay. Now I don't get afraid. Aliens, that's why they go down. That's exactly right. Sharks, swimming with sharks. I was just in the Bahamas a few weeks ago swimming with uh, a couple of sharks were around. And I wasn't really that scared after understanding the research behind it. And so I wonder if, you know, it comes, it comes, you should start having it in those areas. You can have it in faith or uh, in your spiritual life too. It's a grace from God, I guess. <laughs> Aslan tells her to go back and wake up her brothers and sisters and to just follow him. Uh, there's an echo here of Second Corinthians where Paul talks about that we walk by faith, not by sight, because they can't see him. And Lucy actually asked him what would have happened if she had just been obedient in the first place. And Aslan doesn't play that game. He doesn't go down the what if. He says, you can't know. But what he tells to tell her is, I now want you to go back, wake up your family, and come follow me. Mm. That's a really... I didn't catch that the first time, but that's just a, a good, like, brief little pause for people to think about in your own spiritual journey. What if I would have became a Christian sooner? What if I would have prayed? What if I would have made this decision, not this decision? What if I wouldn't have hurt this person this way? And we can play that game, but it's not our job to know the what if. The, the outcomes, maybe this was actually the best path for our journey, and it's just not worth playing those games. Trust that God is blessing your journey along the way, and you did make a few mistakes and some wrong turns, and he's still there with you and going to guide you the most optimal path going forward. Yeah, I think it's ultimately fruitless. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a, waste, it was a waste of time. It will only bring despair and negativity and resentment. And you can't change anything. You can't change what's happened, only what will happen. Exactly. And so she says that the others won't believe her, but Aslan says that she has to come follow him. She has to be a, an obedient witness, a martyr. And there's a lovely moment when we're told that Lucy buried her head into his mane and to hide her face. And Lewis says that there must be magic in his mane because she could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan. And now all of Narnia will be renewed. All I'm thinking of as you're describing this is what I mentioned last week briefly with going to Mass for me and my own spiritual journey. That is that intimacy with Christ in the Eucharist. When I screw up, when I sin, when I act ways I don't want when I fall out of rhythms for weeks on end uh, with God and not praying like I should be and feeling distant from him. And honestly, you start to lose courage in life and you're just, you don't feel very centered. I go to confession and I go in that intimacy of the mass and I come out and I, I feel exactly what was just described here. Honestly, it feels like magic. I don't like using that <laughs> word because it almost, it seems like it's transactional, but really that's what grace is not transactional, um, something that's like transforming you. And it feels like magic because you are doing nothing. You're like, this is too good to be true. And then you have this new strength. And then I approach the world and it's not as if, oh, well, you know, you screwed up these last four weeks. You got four weeks to make up for. It's like right in that moment, you're back on track. It reminded me of Lewis's comments in Mere Christianity that if you want to get wet, you get near the water, you get near the spray. And so Lucy has come to the source of grace in this world, which is Aslan. Mm, That's so good. And so Lucy wakes everyone up, and they're incredibly grumpy. uh, And she just starts following Aslan, and they thankfully do follow her. Uh, And I think this does point to 
the role of a Christian, role of an evangelist, our primary job is to follow Jesus and hope that other people follow us in following him. That while we can see him and they can't, that they would trust us enough so that they get to the point where they can see him themselves. And it actually rather reminded me of the great divorce with the mother. Remember the mother who she really loved her son in such a twisted way. And when she comes to the foothills of heaven, Reginald tells her that she won't be able to see him yet. Or rather, he won't be able to actually perceive her. This makes me think of the gospel message. Uh, only the they who look back will never be able to go forward or they have to go bury my dead. And Jesus says, you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven if you do that. She had that moment where she, she could have lost her family. I mean, it might be overly dramatizing it slightly, but she could have went with Aslan. They could have went a completely different way. They could have gotten lost. They could have gotten deeply separated. And she says, I do hope that you will all come with me because, because I'll have to go with him whether anyone else does or not. Like that's a really beautiful moment where she had to make that decision to follow Aslan no matter what the cost. And in the words of Hebrews, she has to fix her eyes on Jesus. That's where her gaze is. Yes. If you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the White Witch comes back and, she, and Edmunds meets her again for the first time, he's calm because he keeps his eyes fixed on Aslan. And we're probably going to talk about at the end, I'm assuming, a few of our major themes and we'll pull them out. But this is going to be one of them. Lucy's role, that faith, that obedience, what that did and the persecution or... Um, bravery, if you want to look at it that way, that she could have, she could have under, endured persecution and she had an immense amount of courage to do it. I mean, so beautiful, so reminiscent of our own spiritual journeys. I love that. Great theme. Yeah. She was obedient. Yes. And one by one, the children are able to see him and even in the end, so is Trumpkin. And then Aslan roars and we have this strange scene where Bacchus and Silenus start vines growing everywhere uh, and grapes appearing all over the wood. Bacchus was the Roman god of agriculture, wine, and fertility. He was equivalent to the Greek god Dionysus. And Silenus was sort of the Robin to his Batman. So my Batman, you Robin? Pfft, you wish. <laughs> hey, you got to be the brain. I was a pinky. Can't we just, you know, for a short period, assume different for this one? No, no, no. I'm definitely Batman. You know, you don't... I'm Batman. <laughs> And they move on to Aslan's how. And here they overhear a conversation. Nickabrick has brought in a hag and a werewolf. And they want to bring the witch back. Remember earlier we said that just because you win a battle doesn't necessarily mean the war is over. Mm-hmm. Well, it was about to double down. Not only do you have Miraz, but you could possibly have Jadis back as well. And there's a fight. And the hag and the werewolf are both killed. And finally things start getting a little better. Peter takes charge, and uh, whilst reassuring Caspian that he's not here to take his throne, but to put him on it. And he challenges Miraz to single combat. And uh, he did this primarily just just as a delaying tactic. But thanks to the division within the Telmarines, two of Miraz's advisors use reverse psychology to trick him into accepting. Uh, what I will say is that little scene, it reminds me of Jesus' words when he said, a house divided will not stand. Hmm. And in the Telmarines, you see it's very much a house divided. Miraz himself was a usurper, and his two advisors had helped him get the throne, and they felt like he hadn't been suitably grateful. So they're going to trick him into taking this challenge, 
and uh, we actually end up killing him just to make sure. <laughs> that interaction between them as they're fooling him into it was pretty funny. Yeah, it was very Shakespearean, I thought. Um, and you also see how Miraz's pride pushes him to do something very silly. Uh-huh. If you have the radically larger army, you don't go into single combat. That's silly. You don't need to do it. No. It's only basically because they call him a chicken. <laughs> I have a moment just like this in my life where I borrowed my brother's snowmobile. I actually just sprayed a little water on it after using it, but didn't do any cleaning. And he comes in and he goes, you didn't clean that very well. I said, I did a great job cleaning it. He goes, no, you didn't. It's terrible. I said, well, then you show me how to do it. And he literally <laughs> goes and cleans the whole thing. And then I come back. I said, oh, thanks, dude. Nice work. You did a good job. There was an advert in the 80s back in England for a uh, washing up liquid. That it was two brothers and it had exactly the same play. Actually, I think I've shared that story before. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have shared mine because it was one of my prouder moments. No, I, d I, I don't remember that because <laughs> I had probably made a comment about you being incredibly lazy yeah uh anyway so peter fights miraz he's got the upper hand then miraz is killed and then battle ensues anyway but the old narnians eventually win because the trees are brought back to life and they sweep upon the enemy uh, also another shakespearean illusion it's kind of like in macbeth burnham wood coming to defeat them or uh, have you reached the Ents yet in Lord of the Rings? Oh, yes. The, uh, they escaped from the, and went into the forest, and they've, now, they've already had the journey with the Ents, but they haven't stormed yet or anything like that. Yeah, because they eventually go and attack Isengard. I'm excited for that, that moment. And then everything starts wrapping up. Caspian is introduced to Aslan, and then we have the exchange that was our quote of the week when Aslan asks Caspian, does he feel ready to be king? And Caspian says no, and Aslan says good. <laughs> And you get to see the kind of king that Caspian is going to be. Like Jesus, he's going to be a servant king. He has, unlike Miraz, he has humility. At no point in this has he really been actually grasping for the throne. And there's a lovely exchange where Caspian comments on his ancestry. He says that he wished he comes from a more honorable lineage rather than a line of tyrants. And Aslan says, you come from the Lord Adam and Lady Eve, said Aslan. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Mm. And it actually made me think of receiving Holy Communion. Because we are sons of Adam, but thanks to Christ, we are also sons of God. We're adopted into God's family. And those, those two sonships should have such an interplay that we are humbled, but also exalted. That's really beautiful. I must have skimmed that. <laughs> well, did you read about the healing of Reaper Cheap? Favorite part of the whole book. It is lovely. Unbelievable, actually. I, I read it a couple of times. So the mice bring Reaper Cheap to Aslan, and he's looking in terrible state. And Lucy gives him some of the cordial, and he's basically healed. But his tail hasn't grown back. And Reaper Cheap says, the tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. And Aslan responds, I have sometimes wondered, friend, whether you do not think too much about your honor. So we get to see one of Reaper Cheap's greatest strengths, but also his weakness. His, his, his honor can become a, a form of pride. And then Aslan asks, why have your followers drawn their swords, may I ask? And the second mouse says, may it please your high majesty, 
We are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honour which is denied to the high mouse. And Aslan's response is just gorgeous. He says, ah, roared Aslan, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reaper Cheap, but for the love that is between you and your people. And then he heals Reaper Cheap's tail. It's, we see that in scripture, the different moments that love compelled God in the Old Testament and love compelled Jesus in the New Testament. It's, it's always very moving. And I think Lewis really captured that well in this scene. I think there's one healing in particular that Lewis is alluding to. The healing of the paralyzed man. Remember, they couldn't get into the house, so his friends took him up to the roof, mm. ripped part of the roof off, and dangled it down. And in scripture, it makes it clear it was because of the faith of his friends that he's healed. Mm. I'm thinking of, you have the one of the, the, what, the centurion who comes, and by his faith, by his faith, his daughter is healed. You have... Uh, oh, hang on, hang on. You, hang on. you got that slightly confused. It's, it's, it's the centurion's servant is healed. Yes. And you've got the, the ruler of the synagogue, his daughter is healed. Yes. See, I'm always close. Uh, always close. <laughs> I, let me put it this way. I'm always close enough that I've got the gist of it. <laughs> I want to use close enough. Because in my head, it's like, oh, I got enough there. Uh, but then you've got the Old Testament too. Uh, was it Abraham that pleaded with God for the salvation of the city? If there's only 20, if there's only 10... I mean, just how beautiful. Yeah. And then there's a big party. The trees provide the bonfire. Bacchus and Silenus, uh, they provide the food. And then Aslan builds a doorway for those Telmarines who don't want to stay in Narnia, where Caspian is king. And it's here that we find out the Telmarines originally came from our world, uh, a shipload of pirates in the South Sea. And so then the Telmarines start going home, and it's at this point that the children also prepare to go home. And when we find out that Peter and Susan aren't coming back. And so they walk through the doorway and they find themselves back on the railway station where we began the story. And you know what? In that time period, they went further up. And further in. <laughs> but that's not the end, guys. Don't turn the podcast off. <laughs> so what did you think of the book? Major themes? Uh, did you like it more, less? Well, you know, okay. Give me a thought. First of all, when I was, as I told you, I didn't love it at first. Then, as I started thinking about the major themes, I really liked it, and so I'm excited for us to talk about those. But even as you went through it and we talked about it, I just I fell in love with it more as we just went through it. A few of those again, really subtle things I did not pick up on Aslan's how. Wow, really cool point. Wish I would have picked up on that. And so part of it is just. <laughs> you have to really be engaged in reading it and they're subtle and you have to be paying attention to the little details to really capture this. But the, the, the high level first major theme I loved with this was the, the continuous battle between good and evil. We had in the first Narnia book, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, it almost seemed as if it was done. You know, the witch was done. They held their place. They, it was paradise pretty much they were in a state of shalom everything was in harmony and then they come back and it's almost seems like it's all over again all for nothing and how often in our own spiritual lives does that feel like the case you know what? i conquered this evil and it's i'm in a great place and i'm moving forward but then either the same evil sometimes come back 
or a different one comes and we have a new battle to fight. And so that that's, it's just, it's a wonderful theme of how we've got to constantly be going through that. And like Peter, Edmund, and them grew again in this one, we grow again in our new battles as well. I'm pleased that you like it more as we've discussed it. <laughs> what about you, though? <laughs> what do you think of Lucy's struggle as a major theme? That's my favorite part of the book, that she has a very clear choice to make. It's either complete fidelity to Aslan, or she will let those that she loves cause her to go further away from him. And although she messes up to begin with, she has to do over. And she then does it right. I love that grace, that do-over, and that, that tender scene that you talked about with laying her head in the mane and the magic. It was, it was stunning. What did you think of the horn and, I guess, the role of God's timing or Aslan coming into it and being later than others and how that relates to our own spiritual journey? Yeah, I think this appears quite a few times in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in this one, Peter even says that Aslan will no doubt do something, but in his time, not ours. But he didn't see that as a reason for inaction in the meantime. They just had to get on with the task at hand as best they could. This was potentially my... Well, I'm not going to rank it, because all, th- all of these so far have been fantastic. I love Lucy's struggle. But I really like this one as well, because so much in life we are spent as Christians in time of prayer asking for God, for help, for assistance for guidance, for wisdom. And I would, I would use this word, actually, consciously. Rarely it takes the form that we expect. And that's important because you can't lose hope. You want to keep your eyes open to receiving what God's giving you, not what you think God should be giving you. And then trusting that he is answering it in his own way. It reminds me of that I mentioned probably multiple times of Mother Teresa when the man asks pray for clarity for me because I'm really struggling right now. And she says, that's the last thing I'll pray for. I'll pray for trust. When we pray, we need to trust. God's not going to always show us how he's answering it, but we need to trust he is good, he is faithful, and he is absolutely answering our prayer. And we need to move forward with that assumption, and the rest will fall into place. Hmm. Just do the next right thing. Yes, just do the next thing. And you know what? You can't see 10 10 miles in front of you, but you might be able to see five feet in front of you and move five feet. The one minor one I did like, we mentioned this before, but was the worldview and the differences between believers and non-believers and how they talked about it being fairy tale and child's play. And we experienced that today. That made me think of 1 Corinthians 1.18 when Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I really like that. And he also said to the Corinthians, I resolved to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Mm, so good. Probably a good way to end this. Well, an even better way to end it is with a haiku, which I just wrote as we were talking. <laughs> that explains why. As I'm going through this, I'm thinking, David doesn't seem as engaged as what I'm saying. I wonder if either what I'm saying is not that good or uh, he's just distracted. I'm glad to know it was the latter. Yeah, let's say it was that. (laughs) Evil has now come back. Kings and queens of old return. True faith now restored. Bravo, David. Thank you. I had partially written it the other day when I was driving in the car and I didn't write it down. And I kept meaning to come back and finish it. And then we got to the end and I suddenly realized, ah, I need to tidy this off. At what point, so... 
this is where we say please feel free to contact us at wrestlingpilgrim.net, pintswithjack.com, or Instagram and Twitter at pintswithjack.com. At what point do we start just making it all through Pints with Jack and not Restless Pilgrim? Like, are people still contacting you through that, or should we start pushing people all to our website? Well, it's just that that's where all the show notes are, because that's how the podcast actually gets published. We'll have to spend a little bit of time working on the website if we need to move that over. I gotcha. At some point, that could be interesting, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's all working, though. Oh, we need to finish our raffle at some point. What do we, we should probably do that drawing here soon. Yeah, I think we might do a short mailbag episode and we'll announce the winner. Because we've had quite a few lovely, lovely reviews that people have been leaving for us recently. So we've got a couple more interviews to do before the end of the season. And we'll probably have a mailbag episode, as well as a, a trailer episode, I'm going to call it, for season three. Uh, but we'll see you next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.